everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. There are other websites such as BibleProphecyArchive.com where you can get a free 32 or so gigabyte uh, file to download or a USB to send you with all kinds of Bible prophecy text and videos and audiobooks and books and all kinds of stuff. Um, also, you can go to BibleProphecyText.com where you can find all my books for free online. Today, I wanted to do another notes show where I go through my notes and talk about some things that have interested me in the past few weeks, and we'll see how far we get down that list. Starting off with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, this is something that I've talked about on the last few podcasts and have been theorizing about what the true nature of this situation is, because none of the public narratives or even the sort of conservative narratives um, seem to make sense to me. None of it really added up. So what is the real situation there? And I've got another theory, or at least a, an expansion on a previous theory. So let's catch you up as far as that goes. It didn't make sense why the West was appeared to be provoking Russia into this conflict. It seemed incredibly reckless, given that Russia is a nuclear superpower and everything was, you know, with NATO was, was fine. There was no reason to just get in there and, and start uh, jumping on that uh, red line that had been drawn for so many uh, decades. And you could make the case, I suppose, that Russia was crazy, which is sort of the main narrative is that, uh, you know, Putin wants to conquer the world and he's got a brain tumor and is just being completely illogical. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You have the issues of the coup with Victoria Nuland and the Obama administration in, in the Ukraine. And certainly there is so much corruption in the last uh, decade or so there. I mean, it, everybody became a millionaire or billionaire in the Ukraine with all that uh, money sloshing around the last decade, including, I think, the Biden family, which is part of what was going on with Hunter Biden in the Ukraine and the board of Burisma and all that stuff that uh, Glenn Beck is actually really good at. He's done a lot of the, and other people at this point have too. But it's really, that, that rabbit hole goes very deep, lots of proverbial bodies buried there, and it could have been just maybe the Biden uh, administration wanted to cover some of that up or whatever. And maybe that was part of it, but that didn't make a lot of sense either. You could, a lot of people have been looking at this as sort of a Putin is anti-New World Order and against all that stuff. And it's just the last nationalist bastion standing, which has kind of come up with um, the, the last uh, few uh, months. And some of the people that I think of as really having the receipts, you know, the Whitney Webbs of the world, which is a great podcast, Unlimited Hangout, um, that it's these, you know, brains trying to figure out what all is happening here and know who is involved with a lot of this stuff. They had a, a, a debate not too long ago about the conflicts with, is, is Putin part of the uh, World Economic Forum concept anymore or is he rebelling against it? And James Corbett, I had mentioned another uh, a podcast that he did where he was essentially saying that Putin, no matter what he says, is still World Economic forum to the bone. He mentioned some documents with Russia and China basically still being on board with all that stuff, the depopulation, the UN agenda and all that stuff. I don't know about depopulation from that particular document, but, and that comes into play later. But my main point is that I think now I'm more, and I mentioned in the last podcast that I believe more, okay, I should back up. Another problem that was happening is that 
one of the things that it, nothing seemed right is that it seemed like you didn't have to be that smart. You didn't have to be a chess player to know that the sanctions and everything that we did in Russia would necessarily drive Russia to China's arms. Um, if you're sanctioned and you can't use the dollar, you have the incentive to do what Russia's always wanted to do, which was get off the petrodollar. And really, the whole world wants off the petrodollar at this point, which means that America just basically dies at this point, as econ economically speaking. The, the, what we used to think of as the world reserve currency is now based on the petrodollar. It sort of got rearranged, and now that's what essentially we mean by that. And that's already starting to crumble with the new currency, the BRICS, uh, alliance and all this stuff, stuff that the United States used to go to war to protect uh, covertly, if, if not overtly. And now we're just doing something that we know that that's the, lot, the outcome and creating a massive super state block, this, you know, proverbial 1984 Eurasia or Oceania with Russia and China as it's a marriage made of convenience now, not just geographically since they're neighbors, but also because they have what each other needs. And if they're going to be sanctioned by the West, then, well, okay, it's not my preferred partner, but uh, let's go ahead and do -si do So that was an obvious thing that why would you do that if you knew that that was the outcome? There's almost nothing worth that, certainly not any of the things that we've been saying on the news. So what is the deal here? And um, I mentioned in that podcast that I think it was a lot like the 1984 situation in which you need to, if you're planning on a world government kind of thing that won't be like we think of one big global government, but at least different blocks of places because you can't rule the entire world with the same system because we're so ethnically and, and uh, culturally diverse. You can't rule Chinese people with the same laws that you uh, rule the West. We just are too different. And so you create these, as it was in 1984, at the end of that nuclear sort of uh, uh, world, you had these major super blocks that, that arrived. And in the book, its main goal, the reason that the propaganda existed to say, hey, be afraid because we're at war with this uh, uh, Eurasia or Oceania, was because it was, it was a blank check to crack down crack down on their opposition. Because if you were against or said anything basically against the state, it could be construed as, are you on the side of our enemies that we're currently at war with? Because if you are, then death is the logical outcome. I saw something on Twitter the other day that just frightened me to my core, which is essentially that. It was somebody saying that some political enemy in America in other words, some uh, right-wing guy uh, had said something, I don't know what it was, but it was basically like somebody had said, well, we should kill him or he should be, I don't know, <laughs> I, should, I should have this in front of me. But the weird thing was that somebody had said in the comments, well, I mean, we shouldn't kill him. I mean, if we were at war with Russia, that would be a different story. Then, yeah, I mean, you could kill him then. And I was thinking, oh my. And I was just looking at the comments of that comment for anybody to say, hey, um, just because you're at war with somebody doesn't mean you get to kill somebody that that expresses a different opinion. That was kind of the point, is that I think that that serves the New World Order or any kind of totalitarian thing. In other words, that's one of the chief uses for war, especially if you could control the opposition. If you actually were in control of the country you were at war with, and you get, you get to have the best of both worlds, right? You get to have all the fear and all the uh, blank check to do anything that you want with any political enemy uh, forever. And because that's part of 1984, it was a perpetual war forever. And 
you get to also know that it's not a real big threat to you because you control the opposition. So I was suspicious of that being the case with Russia. And there have been a few, as I mentioned, people like uh, Whitney Webb and James Corbett who had pointed out that Russia does not exactly seem like it's against the, um, the New World Order. And I had seen something this week about, hey, listen to the speech of Vladimir Putin. He's going off against the globalists. And I was listening to this and I was waiting for the going off against the globalists. And it was just so milk toast. It was like the Fox News version of anti-globalism. It was nothing. It was no real things. It was no depopulation talk. It was no, no mentioning the World Economic Forum by name. It was no anything of any real substance. It was, it was just a show. And, um, you know, we could go into the whole backstory of Putin and Klaus Schwab and how, you know, they've been buddies for decades and decades, according to both of them. And I just don't see it. I think it's controlled opposition. And I think that that's not really the, the thing in my notes. The thing in my notes is about climate change as it relates to all this, because I think that if we assume that it's controlled opposition to a certain degree, then I think I can make a case of what it might be about, which is this new climate change push, which has really started this last week or so. Now, I saw a, um, I think it was Project Veritas that had a video of this CNN producer that had some kind of inside track. And this is like a year and a half ago, right, right in the middle of COVID. And he was saying, yeah, it's COVID right now, but the word just came down after COVID. We're just going to go straight into climate change. It's going to be all climate change 24-7. The big heads are all about that. That's the new thing. That's the new COVID. And I remember thinking, ah, you know, probably, I mean, climate change is obviously a big new world order thing. And I, But the thing I couldn't quite understand about it is how can climate change serve particularly their depopulation agenda in the short term? I mean, I could make sense of the of why, why global uh, climate change is the kind of thing you would want to sell if you were a potential global government because you would need this thing to unite the whole world. And that is a cause that can't be done on a single, uh, with a single country. You need all the countries to get together in order to fight it. It's sort of your perfect enemy because the only solution is to band together. So that's kind of what I thought, but I'd never thought about it in terms of a depop depopulation strategy, which is sort of New World Order 101. This For the last 150 years, they've been talking about how they want to kill billions of people or however many people uh, to reduce the population to something like 500,000. And um, so all those things kind of put it, were put in the pot. And I think what I think is happening is, well, we have to go into a little bit more. So as you know, the Russia thing has been blamed for all kinds of stuff, inflation, uh, the energy crisis in Europe and America. It's been both blamed on the Russia-Ukraine thing. And we can see that that's going to come to a head very significantly probably this winter, because especially in Europe, they are supplied by Russian gas. And if Russia doesn't ship that gas to Europe, then then people are going to freeze. It's just going to be a absolutely terrible winter. So that's happening. But on the other end of the spectrum, this is something that I've been thinking about and talking about for a long time, which is that there is a war on the 2022 harvest. Uh, so everything, I mean, your Ice Age farmer listeners will know that for the last two, two years or something, there's been like a 
war on food, period. I mean, a war on all food infrastructure, anything that is a grain silo or a factory or a packaging plant, certainly all the, the, the fields themselves, farmers are being paid not to farm and to never farm again as a part of their contract. It seems like we, uh, for the last two years, have been doing something systematically, though in the last six months, uh, you know, it's become major news that all the food processing plants blowing up or whatever. So they've gone, it's gone to like a much higher level. And that kind of infrastructure just doesn't get rebuilt tomorrow. It doesn't open up tomorrow. And you take that into account of, I think, part of the strategic selling off of all our reserve stuff. I mean, I don't know what our current wheat reserves are in the U.S., but there's not going to be bread lines if that is pretty low. And if I remember, that was something that Ice Age Farmer had talked a lot about, too, in terms of us selling all our reserves to China and different things like that. So whatever the situation is, if it's anything like the oil reserves, which literally did get sold off. In other words, this 2020 to harvest is going to be bad, which means that 2023, because if you think about it, we're basically living paycheck to paycheck with harvest these days. The whole global system has to work. It's a global system that nobody grows what they need to anymore. They grow what can be sold on the global market. So everything has to be shipped. Every, and you can't just trade everything over with seeds and say, oh, well, that didn't work out. We'll just plant corn and feed it to our local area this time. And of course, we've got the the long and the short of it is it appears that 2023 is going to be extremely difficult with regard to fossil fuel shortages because the same kind of things are happening to its infrastructure, right? The fossil fuel infrastructure, just the idea, the nonsense of not having enough refineries to even make enough gas if we wanted to here to bring down the prices and all the weird government regulations that prevent that from happening obviously the pipelines being closed and all the different things that we're doing to infrastructure. The White House recently this week signed this climate change emergency bill in which the president promised that he would use all his executive power, which at this point means that's essentially dictatorial powers, as far as I can tell, to make actionable things against fossil fuels. I mean, the guy said he's going to end fossil fuels and all these people are saying that they're going to do it. We on the conservative side say, ah, you know, we, we joke about how, you know, it takes, a, it takes more fossil fuel to build an electric car and to power it. And we all know it's nonsense, but it doesn't matter if they're just doing it. But my point is, that's just it. It is nonsense. Everybody that knows, knows. But it doesn't matter because they are just doing it. This, lo this latest climate change emergency, which is not just a White House thing. It was a few days before that that Klaus Schwab met with the UN and declared that a climate emergency. So we were just following Klaus Schwab and the, and the, U Klaus Schwab and the UN's lead with them saying, we're going straight Agenda 2030, which is ending fossil fuels, that was a few days before uh, Biden announces his essentially uh, intention to use dictatorial powers to take on the, the uh, uh, fuel infrastructure. So anyway, long and the short of it is this next year, 2023, will be a time of great turmoil, lack of food, lack of fuel. And all of it will be blamed on climate change. So, for example, the hotter than average uh, uh, summer, whether that's real or not real in terms of maybe something like cloud seeding or, or harp or just a bad summer, I don't know. But certainly the inevitable bad harvest that we will have that will kill millions and millions of people, especially in the third world. That will be, and of course, we're not even talking about economic stuff. That's a whole thing, but by itself could do all this stuff. That's just the third rail of this stool of death, but um, it'll be blamed on climate change, the food thing. And then the Russia-Ukraine conflict will also probably kill certainly some people in Europe. I don't know how many people die in Europe, but they'll have a major, major cold problem in Europe with no gas. 
and all that pain and suffering and perhaps millions of dying in the third world because of the fuel, fuel shortage I could talk all at length about if they really want to, anyway, maybe I will later, but the point is that will also be blamed on climate change in a sense, or rather, I think that the angle that they'll use there is similar. They'll say, look at what is happening to us. This proves, that is to say, the, Ru the war in Russia and Ukraine and how Russia is such a big baddie and now we all are reliant on this evil man just to heat our houses. Therefore, this proves all this crazy climate stuff. It proves that we cannot rely on fossil fuels any longer. You know, they're, they're going to sell that as dumb as it is. It, nothing matters anymore about dumb or not. The only thing that matters is power. And they literally, after COVID, any leader of any nation that was not lockstep has been killed or ousted. There are no more free agents. We are all part, the leaders of this world are all uh, in on it. So they're going to do whatever they're told to do. And they're being told to basically shut down the energy and shut down the food. Now comes the depopulation. That will, everybody knows that that's going to cause depopulation, but who's going to stop them? That's the big question. Who would stop them? No one. No one will stop them. And the, the net result of that is, so I guess I've never thought of the climate change thing as a short-term depopulation strategy. But if you think that through, it's kind of the, one of the better ways to do it because you don't, you get to blame it on the thing that you need people to believe anyway. Of course, nobody will believe it, but nobody will care because they'll be hungry. Um, and so let me just walk you through a few scenarios in the West, since I think that's where we think more clearly about things. Every city requires constant resupply of trucks to survive for food. There's no gardens in the city. I mean, there's very few, certainly not enough to, even if every, every parcel of grass was turned into a garden in some major city like Minneapolis, there would be literally no way to feed even 1% of that population. Um, and even if they, so immediately that would turn into a, just a horrible, chaotic death all over the place situation. And that's the cities. I think that there would be less of that in the country, but still a lot. I mean, I'm here in, in, in a place that if there wasn't gas, I mean, we're too far from any sort of centers. I mean, we need horses or something to get places and it would be not as bad, not as chaotic, but certainly a lot of death. It would only take a year. Heck, it was only take a couple months of not having uh, fuel or food for things to get crazy. And what would be left at the end of that would be, um, well, it would be a lot like The Walking Dead, where I think where they would develop these kind of super gangs, like your Negan's kind of pe people, where some particularly charismatic or smart person gives people security through uh, uh, getting a scavenging at a more you know systematic way, using force and guns and whatever to take people's food and to put centralize that food and to give people security in exchange for their obedience to whatever system they create or whatever. I mean, that would be the most logical way to survive in a city would be to join Negan because all other paths are are not good paths are not likely to 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 work in the short term. You need time to to figure it all out. Anyway. I think that even in the West, this results in millions and millions of people dying. Even if just just one bad policy on steroids is what this is. 
you know, on the, on the hidden end, it's a systematic destruction of all food and energy infrastructure. On the public end, it is giving cover for that, both with the war in Ukraine and the climate change, give, give ostensible reasons to do stuff. And nobody thinks like, well, they're not going to like kill us all. I mean, they're not going to make it where there's no gas, where you can't get gas. But the punchline is that, yes, they are planning on killing a lot of people. Uh, the Jane Goodall speech at the World Economic Forum recently made me think about it because she was sort of doing the thing, describing the sort of utopia, the Star Trek universe and how it could be so wonderful if there were only 500,000 or what did she say? The population size of 500 years ago, which is around 500,000 people. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of the water cooler conservative talks about, hey, we can't all use electric cars. It'll use more electricity than we're using right now. But the, the punchline is they don't expect there to be that many people left in the world when they're done with us. So when they're done with us and there's not that many people when all the dust settles, then yeah, electric cars will be just fine. And you don't have to mine that much at all. And all their, at least for their minions, where you do actually have to sell them the global government. I think the people at the top are just Satanists. But briefly, let me tie this into Bible prophecy. I think that there's a big if as to whether or not this global government that is being constructed will become the Ten Kings. I, I think that's really up to God. I mean, if if it's not, then God will uh, uh, thwart it as he has so many other attempts at uh, uh, vain totalitarianism. If it is part of the last seventh head of the beast, then it is in God's will for it to continue until it creates this uh, uh, ten nation situation, which will eventually give rise to the Antichrist. Please understand that the Antichrist comes after the ten kings are established according to my reading of Daniel 7. I go into this a lot in various podcasts and, and, and different things like that. Videos that I've posted recently, the Timeline series, which you can access by going to BibleProphecyTalk.com, uh, among others. But, but my main point here is that most Christian prophecy-minded people are going to tell you that this is it, everybody. This, when it happens, they're going to kill Christians. They're going to kill everybody. It's going to be communism. So of course it's going to kill those that won't go along with it. You can't do anything but kill people in communism if they don't want to go along with it. So, um, so it will be the suggested that it is the end times and that this system is the antichrist system. And it will dovetail with my biggest pet peeve with Christians of the ages. Well, of, you know, recent times anyway, which is that the Antichrist and his system will be a picture of whatever they hate and whatever is bad and not uh, appearing to be good, but rather just so, for example, a Christian would believe the Antichrist is the Antichrist if in the in the early days he was an, a secular humanist that would force everybody to, I don't know, have abortions or something and force everybody to be atheists or something like that. Modern days kind of been like, you know, the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim and he's going to force everybody to wear uh, you know, headscarves and pray to Allah and everything. And, uh, you know, whatever your thing that you are afraid of, your antichrist is going to have two little horns and he's going to be obviously bad. Not a single Christian in the entire world is afraid of the antichrist because everybody will recognize him for this big evil guy doing big evil things. Rah, 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 rah. But th that's not what you read in the Bible. It's not what, certainly not what you read in Matthew 24. You have false Christ, false prophets, Jesus multiple times saying, don't go after them. If he says this, don't go, don't be deceived. See that I've told you beforehand. It's all about a false prophet. It's all about a false Christ. Christ means Messiah. I go through this in my book, false Christ. But the main thing is that 
you can, I think, tell because of the way that he comes on the scene, which is in opposition to the 10 kings. He's subduing three of those kings in that, in that series of wars. People recognize that the Antichrist cannot be defeated. He has some kind of military invulnerability or something, it appears. Everybody is subdued that, that goes into war with him. So the rest of the 10 kings capitulate. They give all their power and authority to him for one hour, according to Revelation 17. So the structure of the 10 kings doesn't change after he shows up, but in terms of the, the ge geography and the sort of bureaucracy, but it, the authority is given to him in his new theocracy that's based on worship. And I believe that it's a liberation of Israel that starts the, the, the covenant. It is a covenant made with many. It is not a, a peace agreement, I mean, against their enemies. It, in a way it is. I think that the, and I've mentioned this before, I'll end this part quickly because I talk about it every time, but I think that the, the 10 kings were controlling Israel like Israel right now does not is the master of its own destiny. I think when the Ten Kings are are established, one of the key components that will make them one of the last heads of the beast, a qualification as far as my understanding, is that they must control Israel again. Israel will no longer be the master of its domain during the first part of the Ten Kings rule, the non-theocracy part. But the Antichrist in his destruction of the three kings, which I think are probably Egypt and whoever is controlling Israel, probably around the, whatever those three kings are probably geographically around there. He will liberate Israel. He will be seen as a great guy for that first three and a half years. I believe that there are wars and rumors of wars as a part of that. The Daniel 11, 40 through 45 wars, which begin at the 70th week and end with the abomination of desolation. In other words, when he when he sets Israel free at the beginning, they will be they will build the temple again and they will do what they've always wanted to do, which was to uh, have their covenant. I mean, they, if you the reading of the old covenant is that you can't have the core part of the covenant is the not just the sacrifices in general, but the day of atonement. Right now they have silly, wishy-washy things. That, oh, yeah, we can uh, be forgiven of sins as long as uh, uh, we're facing towards the temple and are truly repentant. But that's not what it says. It says that they need the temple, they need the Day of Atonement. And if they don't have it, they aren't. their sins aren't atoned for. So I believe that that's what's happening at the beginning of the 70th week. It does cause some wars, but it eventually ends up with him sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, which is the fulfillment of what Jesus really will do. The whole point is he's trying to be the Messiah. He's trying to fulfill everything that Jesus didn't, including the conquest of the entire world and the administration of that world through Israel, which will really happen in the millennium, but he's going to do a fake version. So my point is it's absolutely critical from Satan's perspective for you to hate the new world order. You have to get that, that you are supposed to hate the new world order, all the killing, all the whatever. And yes, during that time, Christians will theorize about how, oh, Klaus Schwab is, or whoever comes next, is he's definitely the Antichrist. And look at all the killing and look at all the evil. He's got devil horns for goodness sakes. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have their enemy. Okay, I'll end that rant there. I said what I wanted to say, and let's move on to the next thing. The next thing I have here is a, uh, a talk about justice. And justice has been a bit of a theme on the podcast, in part because of all the injustices that are happening now, and probably have always happened in the history of the world, you know, the, the prosperity of the wicked and all this stuff. But I think it's particularly uh, poignant for uh, the West and Americans in general who have been told that, you know, liberty and justice for all, and we sort of understand it as this human right now that, you know, if somebody does something wrong, they should be punished for it. They should be sent into jail. And so we see the the wicked people just getting out of justice and the, the righteous or not righteous, but the, the, the people on the other side uh, being jailed for nothing. And, and it's destroying a lot of people in their hearts and minds and they see no justice and they see that it's, it's a theological problem almost for them. 
so that's why I've been thinking about justice. And I w- was thinking about it in terms of the, the story of the Bible. And so let me just talk through some moments in the Bible, starting with Adam and Eve. And so Adam and Eve sin and God himself judges them. He comes down and he says, look, Adam, you did this. I'm going to curse the ground for your sakes. You're going to toil, uh, all this other stuff. He gives Eve, you know, her punishment about childbirth and the rest of it. He punishes the serpent and, uh, you know, prophesies against his ultimate destruction and whatever. God himself both judges and then sentences them to their judgment. I mean, who else was there to do it, but God himself, and he must judge that sin. The sin could not go unpunished. You could make the case of the animal skins that he uses to, uh, to, to clothe Adam and Eve. And some piece, some preachers do that, although it's not expressed. I don't think it's altogether wrong though, for other reasons that we'll get into about sacrifices or whatnot. Uh, but the next beat is Cain and Abel. So literally one generation. And I think that's, that's important to say, look, it didn't even make it one generation. And now we've got murder here, another grave sin. And you love the mercy of God talking to Cain beforehand saying, look, Cain, sin's crouching at your door. You got to master this or it's going to, it's going to eat you alive, basically. And we know the story. Cain kills his brother. The blood cries out from the ground, which is another kind of important little thing there. And uh, he punishes, he gives Cain a punishment. And Cain says, look, my punishment is more than I can bear. And, he, and God in his mercy, the mark of Cain, nobody's going to harm you or whatever, which I think is still pretty cool that there's mercy in that judgment. And I even think that that's, that they could, they should have died. I know a lot of people talk about Adam, Adam and Eve and say, well, maybe they had the tree of life and, and, and maybe they, I don't want to go there yet. So, um, Anyway, so after Cain, we have what? We have genealogies, basically. We've got a little bit of Enoch there, but mostly we go all the way to Noah. And we get to Noah, and what do we have? We have God has said, the whole, every thought in everyone's heart is nothing but wickedness continually. The whole world is now spread to the same kind of sin, unchecked, just sin went crazy. And now the whole world is infected by it. I know that the Nephilim thing, and maybe that was part of it too, but the point that's made there is their sin was, and I think if you follow the beats, it of course makes sense. God does what? He, he judges the whole world because again, he is now the arbiter of that judgment. He's got to judge each and every sin himself. And he does. He judges the entire world. He kills them all. I think it's possible that Abraham and his family escape for the same reason that uh, excuse me, Noah and his family escaped for the same reason that Abraham uh, was declared righteous in a sense, which because of faith. We know that Noah had faith because he built the ark. He obviously believed God uh, to do all this stuff. So he, he might have been declared righteousness, righteous in a sense. I know he was perfect in his generations and all that stuff, but, but bear with me here. So the Noahic covenant is a really interesting thing. So this is the covenant that after Noah gets off the boat, God makes a covenant with him, but God says something to him himself before he makes the covenant with Noah. Let me pull it up here. So this is after the ark has landed and everything is getting back to normal. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, before we get to that, I should say that this sacrifice thing is really important and I'll come back to it there. So the Lord smells the pleasing aroma and says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The first thing I would point out or suggest is that I think, uh, but cannot prove, that this covenant begins a different phase of justice in the Bible. Instead of God himself needing to judge every sin committed by every man, this now begins a change. And he says it's because of or for uh, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Therefore, I, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I've done while the earth remains. Listen to this part. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and win winter, day and night shall not cease. So it's because every intention of man's heart is evil all, all the days from his youth, he's going to let it continue in a different way. Now, this is the first thing I want to say is that I think a new phase of judgment begins with the Noahic covenant. Something related to a theme in the New Testament or a parable that Jesus says about how the wheat and tares will be allowed to grow together until the time of the harvest. So I, I do have an open question as to whether that state of things was something new in Jesus's time, or if it was a continuation of everything past the Noahic covenant. But things do change right after this in terms of God's relationship to justice and the uh, righteousness, what declaring right, people righteous. And I believe there are some suggestions right here in the Noahic passage, starting in verse nine. This is when or chapter nine, when he starts talking about be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, giving Noah and his family a new charge for this new, wor uh, new world, uh, saying things like every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I've given you the green plants, I shall give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So there is this sort of turn to our ears that sort of doesn't really, I mean, a lot of talk about life in the blood, and there's this, all these new rules about it. Even from animals, you have to be, you require a reckoning for the lifeblood of an animal. And so something new has changed here. Now, as far as the next part of the story, we have basically the, uh, the Tower of Babel, which I think is a really interesting thing to, to be next in this storyline about justice in a sense, because if God has now let man do his own thing, he knows that they are going to do evil, but he's just going to allow them continue to continue for a while, then Babel has a new kind of role too, because what he's saying with Babel is that them all having the same language um, and getting together to make this tower, which I don't think the tower is the point. I know that a lot of people talk about it being this portal to whatever or any other kind of version of that. But the point is, he says that now nothing shall be impossible for him. And I think this is in relationship to his sinful state and God allowing the world to continue without immediate judgment of that sin. Then the, the timeline would be it would be too fast. If they all spoke the same language, then we would, it, nothing is impossible for man because man, I actually believe can do so much. I mean, if we were allowed to just be at our peak, the way that God created us, we could learn so much. I mean, think of all the technology and stuff that we've figured out and there's so much more to figure out. I think that, and part of the reason is that we 
don't aren't able to compare notes. You know, I mean, us not having the same language up until very recently when English became kind of the lingua franca, franca and the internet, things just really, really started moving a lot faster. And we're what we're going to do with that knowledge is destroy ourselves and everybody else. So I think Babel in the, the confusing the language and then physically separating them according to the number of the sons of God, putting them all over the world from that, scattering them to the winds, as it were, is a deferring thing. It's not a judgment thing so much as it is, look, as a result of this new system where you guys are allowed to continue, but you're completely evil, we're going to have to work out a situation where you don't destroy the whole world immediately. And that was confusing their language and separate them because comparing notes, because, because the world is about multiple geniuses. There's not that many of them, but they, but the, the, when they compare notes and, and all that stuff and, and figure out stuff, they can really move the, the ball down the field a little bit faster anyway. So that's really not, but that's the next beat. The next beat after that is Abraham. So the next chapter, Abraham, you come over here. I'm going to make a great nation. And the story of Abraham is that he is declared righteous because of his faith in God, much like I think Noah was. Like he believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. So God had a plan for uh, him, a covenant with Abraham that was based around faith and there were sacrifices too with Abraham, you know, they're constantly building altars and thanking God and stuff like that. I don't know if that is salvific or righteous or, or if it's just about faith in that covenant with Abraham. Within the Abraham covenant, it's circumcision, which is the sign of it. But faith is really the, the driving force of declaring somebody righteous or not, if I understand it. But the point is, is that that quickly turns into the Mosaic covenant. Of course, Abraham's descendants in Egypt become the people of Israel and they, they are, uh, saved if you will. Well, it never really changes. I mean, in terms of being saved by faith, but the sacrificial system then gets instituted as a form of their judgment. So what I want to try to say is that the, the, this phase of the whole thing kind of concludes with the Mosaic law, because the Mosaic law now is, if you will, codifying the judgment and, and sentencing that God had to do himself in the garden of Eden or with the flood of Noah or et cetera. So now the law is taking the place, but only for this one people, these little, this little group, he wants to be sort of his image bearers to draw people into him. He wants them to be a righteous and holy people that, that the nations see and are drawn to God, to worship of God for. So he's created this law that would uh, give them an opportunity to, to be righteous and to, to be judged for their sin because the necessity for judging sin is important if you are going to be right with God because of his holiness. And that is pictured in why you have to essentially cleanse the, the, the Holy of Holies with this blood of the lifeblood of, of these animals. And we can get into that. I think a lot of people have trouble with the sacrificial system, but I would encourage you, and, and I'm speaking to myself here too, to, to learn more about it. I think with so many things that are related to the gospel that we could spend an entire lifetime learning about this and still not really understand it. But I think that there's a strong connection between Really, what appears to be one of the first things, as I mentioned, if, if the sacrificing of the animal to cover Adam and Eve's sin with the garments that God himself gives them, and, and really a thread that goes all the way through, of course, Christ uh, himself being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and all the deep theology that's spoken of by the apostles in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, I mean, Jesus is the high priest walking into the Holy Holies and, you know, being... Uh, it just goes on and on. But the sacrificial system is interesting. 
I think that with regard to Noah, I want to say something. I, I did a podcast once called The Cult of Noah, I think is the title of it. I don't know if it's still on the feed or not. Um, but the idea was basically that the pagan world all remembered Noah. It's a main tenant of apologetics is that, you know, people in China have some kind of, and all over the world have this ancestral memory of eight people on a boat because God, uh, there was a flood and there was, you know, even, even the idea of the sons of God that sinned against God and were cast to earth and eventually judged and put into Tartarus and all that stuff is like, in a lot of the stories and none of that makes sense with the worldly version of how the world came to be. And, you know, we all came out of Africa from monkeys and the rest of it. None of that makes sense if everybody remembers the same story, but it does make sense if the Bible is true and that we all came from Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, whose every generation after that remembered, I mean, we're told the story of like, Hey, where did we come from? It's like, well, I mean, there was this flood, right? And like your grandfather Shem was, you know, and then so on and so forth. But an important part of that story, as we read, was the sacrifice of Noah. Noah makes a sacrifice. I don't know where he learns to do this or whatever, but it, Noah is told, told that he makes a sacrifice, and it's pictured that God accepted the sacrifice. And I think that part of the story was passed down. Um, I did in my, when doing the Ancient Aliens Debunked documentary, I did a lot of research in ancient cultures and stuff and spent some time in the South American culture of Viracocha. That's where the cult of Noah comes in, because I think that like many of the gods in Samaria or other places, you can see what part of the story they are. I mean, I think in the Sumerian gods or the Egyptian underworld gods are the same gods that were condemned to the underworld in Tartarus and in both Enoch and, and Genesis and and reiterated in the New Testament. It's, it's all the same, but they gave them pagan, they did pagan things with it all. But in Viracocha in Southern, Southern America, that God, if you follow the story, I mean, it's Noah. I mean, they're all worshiping Noah. It's a cult. But the thing about it is that the sacrificial system, I think sometimes people look at it as like, that was this worldly thing. And yes, they perverted the sacrificial system into like sacrificing humans and all kinds of stuff that they did and believing that their gods were creeping things and birds or whatever. But the sacrificial system was an ancestral memory from Noah making the sacrifice that what that God was pleased with. And that got perverted over the years into whatever ancient system that, or whatever pagan system they developed to worship and whatever stories they told themselves, they incorporated sacrifice into it. But usually it was this evil version. And I think that it, even in that Noahic blessing, it makes that point that the animals can't be just killed willy nilly and they have to be killed in a certain way because, and he will require blood guilt for animals that are not done in this way. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing. I think God has, has a ton of love for animals. I think that is part of the reason why sacrifice exists in a sense that animals have this innocence. They are not even capable of, of guile. I mean, I mean, they can be, you know, certain things, but, but mostly they're just this picture of innocence and it's the sacrificing them that can pay for our sins in that substitutionary atonement concept, which has its fulfillment in Jesus, who John the Baptist said was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb, the innocent, sinless lamb, thereby an acceptable sacrifice by this same concept who gave his life on our behalf, our sin, past, present, and future judged in this moment. And therefore, because, because God has judged us and given us with Christ's righteousness, that's the whole thing is that now we can be seen, if you will, with 
Christ's good works instead of ours. You know, if we get to heaven, it's because Jesus did, did sinlessly, not because we did sinlessly. Our only defense uh, on the proverbial St. Peter's uh, uh, gate is to say, oh, there was, a, you know, this guy who did perfectly and he on my behalf died. So it's not about me. It's about whatever he did or didn't do. It's his righteousness that I am here or not here because of. So in this world, if we can be forgiven already, um, then that's the whole point. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to be, were to be a people for God. God created a people uh, that he would be their God and we would be his people. He wanted a people to share eternity with, but he wanted them to be a people that wanted to be there. And in order for those that wanted to be there to be there, they need to have their sin judged and they needed to come out of that judgment righteous. And the only way to do that was through Jesus's righteousness. And so now we have been uh, given this spirit because we have been deemed clean. And so God's spirit can tabernacle in our hearts and begin to change us from the inside out, which is the new covenant. It is the heart of uh, stone to heart of flesh. And ultimately it will result in our resurrection because that righteousness is in fact true. We have been redeemed. So we will be resurrected and we will in fact uh, spend eternity in the glory of whatever God has in store for us, which I'm sure is going to be absolutely astounding. But to bring that back to the judgment story, the New Testament, as I said at the beginning, has this new thing where the judgment of God, his right, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, as it says in the Old Testament, I will repay. He's saying, look, I'm going to deal with all the judging. So, uh, but in the New Testament, he gives that judgment to Jesus. And I'm wondering if maybe one of the reasons he gives it to him to execute is in part because the bride is his to choose who is and isn't. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's also because Jesus is the one who has experienced judgment for so many and therefore can righteously judge those, or maybe there's something to that as well. I don't know, but the main place I want to take this now is what does it mean for practically on the ground in terms of how we deal with the wicked prospering and all this stuff. And I think I want to read Romans 12, 9 through 21, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he takes this concept of don't, don't worry about avenging yourselves. Don't worry about all this, uh, you know, evil happening and wondering if God is going to judge them, but instead realize that God has that taken care of. He has appointed a day in which to judge the world and he will execute his judgment that day. He will also execute it at the great white throne judgment where literally no one is going to escape him judging each and every one of them for each and every work that they have done. It will be weeping and gnashing of teeth on that day. Rest assured, God will execute his judgment upon the wicked. Therefore, 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And this is by no means the only place in the New Testament. You probably have several other passages in your mind right now where it says stuff like turn the other cheek and the rest of it. And it seems that he really means it. He seems, it seems that the idea is, look, I have judgment. They are to be pitied. They are going to be judged. I have something for you redeemed people to do, and that is to love those very same people. I think that will do it for me today. I did want to say that I think that my podcast feed only allows 50 episodes at a time. Uh, I have that set somewhere in some setting. I'm going to change that to its maximum amount after I get done recording this. So you should be able to have access after this to you know the podcast for, for years and years and years back of uh, Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. So I'll try to do that as soon as I get done with this if you're interested in that for archival purposes. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can go to BibleProphecyText.com or BibleProphecyArchive.com for more. And we will see you next time. Bye.